reinforce some things in our own hearts, in our minds, as a faith community. And so if you're joining us today, you're coming into the middle of a series that we're calling Sheer Christianity, with the idea of identifying and discussing um, important and significant truths and aspects of the Christian faith that we feel are, are, are characteristic of this faith community and also in need of bolstering within the Christian heart and mind for the days in which we live. So we're calling it sheer Christianity in that it is undiluted, it is without compromise, and we're endeavoring to seek through the Word of God to be strengthened and encouraged by what does the truth of the Word have to say as it relates to this. And so this week, I'm looking forward to, uh, to speaking to you all on what I've been titling Generosity, the Heart of the Matter. That's the name of my, of my sermon for this day. I was thinking about uh, inspired, my title is inspired by the, uh, the song by the Eagles, Don Henley. You guys know that song? The Heart of the Matter. I'm trying to get back to the heart of the matter. So sheer Christianity, I want to speak on generosity, and I want to begin by sharing with you uh, a quote from John Piper just as we begin, and it says this. Maybe you could help me back there. It's a, the struggle is real. I want to share with you a quote as I begin this morning from John Piper because I, I, I felt as though it, it really spoke to a, on a broad level um, the heart here of what I want to get at as we begin. And he says this, people who make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. People who make a difference in the world are not, a lot of, are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by very few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ. You don't have to have a high EQ. That was pretty clever, John. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and willing to lay down your life for them, which is why anybody can make worldwide difference. And this is the point, because it isn't you, it's what you are gripped with. And I just loved that last statement. It isn't you, it's what you are gripped with. And so as I said, I'm titling this morning on the subject of generosity, the heart of the matter, because when it's distilled to its very essence, it is a matter of the heart. And I'm still challenged by what Rick said a couple of weeks ago, and I want to remind us again that a kingdom of God worldview, no matter what the subject is, a kingdom worldview says that regardless of what it requires, church, we are to love what God loves the way that God loves it. That's not an affection, that's a heart-gripping statement, that we are to be gripped by what God wants us to be gripped with, the way that he wants us to be gripped by it, which is really just another way of saying what I quoted here a moment ago from John Piper. As a countercultural set of beliefs and a way of life, in God's kingdom, it is not what we possess that makes us useful or effective for him, right? It's not what we have, it's not what you have to offer that makes you effective for the kingdom of God. Ultimately, what it is, is what possesses you. It's not what you possess, but it's what possesses you. 
It's what our hearts are gripped by and the degree by which they are gripped by it. Because we know that when we're really moved by something, there's very little that comes at too great of a cost for it. Think about that just for a moment. Something that you might really, really value, something you might really desire, infrequently does that come at too great of a cost in our lives. Usually we're willing to pay whatever that price is. And I was thinking about this, I was just thinking, what are some cultural examples of this idea that really oftentimes in each and every one of us, there is something that's not too great of a cost. And I was thinking of some cultural examples, and, and the first one I thought of was, was sports and fandom, of course. We realize people go to the greatest and nth degree when it comes to affiliations with their sports teams. Am I right, Marco? The Ram fan over here. Did you know that the NFL is something like a $500 billion net worth globally? $500 billion industry. That is absolutely remarkable, the amount of money that gets funneled into that heart-gripping affection in the world. Travel and leisure, that's another one. We're willing to put our, our money and our time and our resources to... That great value for so many people, appearances, clothing, accessories. I've got a friend who is totally into watches. This guy will spend $400 on a watch without blinking an eye. Yeah, and it's got a collection of like 20 of them. Consumables, entertainment. You know the average American watches upwards of three hours of TV a day and spends upwards of an hour on social media per day the average American. Did you know that the average Christian American prays for approximately a minute every day? That's the average according to George Barna. That's pretty remarkable. Three hours a day on TV, we put our time and our resources at the things that we value the most. As, worship, as worshiping creatures, we are all susceptible to having our hearts held by something that is ultimate. It isn't about what we have, church. It's about what has us. And I've shared this with you before, and I'm sure you've heard it elsewhere, but we've quoted a number of times the statement from, that's attributed to John Calvin, at least, where he's saying that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory to which another individual added to it that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and it turns them into ultimate things. That's what the human heart does. Our hearts deify, this individual goes on to say. It deifies them, it, or it, it worships them as God, in other words, as the center of our lives, because we think that they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. And so church, just as I begin this morning, it's right here in this very place of the issues of the heart that we have to begin when we're speaking about generosity. Because it's a matter of the heart. But I think we also have to be willing to admit right now in this very moment that, it, that it, it, this is not the way that God has taught us or modeled for us through Christ Jesus. By that I mean to be gripped by things other than Christ himself. And so it's important as we begin to remind us that generosity isn't solely about money 
and how much you can give. That's not what this is about. It's not just about money. It might be the first thing that we think of when we think about generosity because of the significance of wealth and, and the, in the part that it plays in the life of the human being. But it's not just about money. A generous person is one who is ready and willing to give more of something, be it time, be it money, be it energy, or another resource above and beyond what is necessary and or required. That's what it means to be generous, to give more of something above and beyond what is necessary and what is required or expected. But see, the culture, listen to this for a moment. I'm just setting this up, and I will open the Word of God. We will teach from it this morning. But I'm just setting this up because as I was thinking about, I wanted to speak on this important subject for us as a church and in this present day and age because of the so many things that are gripping our hearts constantly. But as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, what is it really when we distill it down to its most core issue? What is it? And it's what I've been saying. It's that it's this matter of our hearts and what grips us and what we place as the ultimate thing to be sought after and to be pursued at whatever cost. And so as we begin with it, we have to remember that it's not just about money and that culture, through its liturgies, it seeks to filter and change and redefine what generosity means. Think about this for a moment. I come from a background of working in public market. And I managed a division, and in this division, everything was about bottom lines, something called KPIs, if you've heard of that before, key performance indicators, uh, cost versus risk analysis, versus cost, risk, benefit analysis. Everything gets reduced to this idea ultimately, we think that it's about profitability, but what is it really about? It's about what benefits us. And I get it, a business has to make money, so I'm not saying that those values aren't, those principles aren't valuable. But what I'm just saying is that within culture, what happens is we take that mentality and it bleeds over and it finds its way into the church as well. And suddenly it's about the bottom line. And suddenly our hearts are about what ultimately benefits us and not what really God has necessarily called us to out of obedience. But true generosity, kingdom of God generosity, church, is not born out of manipulation. It's not born out of coercion. Neither does it come from an obligatory or compulsory mentality. Rather, kingdom generosity comes from a deep conviction of the heart that is born and birthed by the Holy Spirit at regeneration, that is enabled by grace. Listen, it's birthed by the Holy Spirit when we come to Christ. Kingdom generosity, it's enabled by grace and enacted by grace in the life of a believer. And it has one end goal, the furtherance of the kingdom of God and the glorification of the name of Jesus Christ. That is kingdom generosity, church. That is what we have been born into. That is what we've been called to. And again, don't just hear me. This isn't like a, the church wants to fill its coffers with cash. Get your wallets out, because here it comes. We're going to pass the love loaf around afterwards. No, no, what I'm saying, church, is the type of people we're called to be today, to live in this day and age, is a people who are gripped by something greater than what this earth offers, but gripped 
by Christ himself and are willing at whatever cost to further the kingdom of God here on earth under the glorification of his name. That is what we're called to. And can I just say as well that it's not, in, in, in the scripture, it's not an optional choice. It's characteristic of a New Testament people. And it's been modeled for us first and foremost. We always look to Christ Jesus. We look to him as our example. We look to him as the prototype of whom we follow after. The firstborn among many. And he shows to us through his life a modeling of generosity not only for us, as in someone to follow, but towards us as well. We are recipients of the generosity of Christ Jesus himself. And just to name a few, generosity of grace we have been recipients of. John 1, right? John 1, from from him, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And Paul would say also in Romans 5 that where the law came into increase, the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. We are recipients of this grace that is far more abundant, far more greater than any sin or any trespass could be in our life. We've been recipients of generosity and mercy. Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter 1. And we, when we just finished our study, we, we taught this portion of Scripture in 1 Peter 1, chapter 2, where he says, A people for God's own possession we are, to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness. Listen, we are recipients of his mercy generously. Called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he says that once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And what? Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're recipients of his generous love. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And then he makes the statement, and so we are. And some of the other translations say, behold or see, look upon and see the great and generous love of Jesus Christ that you would be called the children of God. And so you are. Christ has modeled for us a generous freedom. Romans 8.15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And there's so much more we could unpack in that statement of the soteriology, but this reality that it is without, it is, it, we are not able to cry, Abba, Father, without the spirit of God within us, without first our hearts being enlivened by the grace of God to believe, to receive the Spirit, by then we cry out, Abba, Father. What an abundance of generous, generous freedom and adoption we have received from Christ. And of course, this generous payment, which we came to the Lord's table this morning and we remembered together. When the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the what? The joy for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despising the shame. And we could go on and we could go on and on and on, but the point of this is, brothers and sisters, we look to Jesus. He is the exemplary one by whom we follow, by whom we are to model ourselves after. 
May we always keep him as such in our hearts and in our minds. And so as we do then, as we hold Christ up as our greatest standard of measurement and the one whom we follow, we must also hold a right perspective of what we have been given. We have to hold in our hearts a right perspective of what we've been given. And Paul speaks so brilliantly to this in Philippians chapter 2 when he speaks of Christ himself again. To the church in Philippi, he says this, that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. A more literal translation of that says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto for advantage. That's that statement. What are we holding on to, church, as an advantage for our lives? What do we hold? What do we keep? What do we preserve as an advantage which, which we ought to be leveraging for the kingdom of God? Which we ought to be creating and using as an advantage for others and Christ himself. I want to just take a moment and share with you a very quick story. Um, for those of you who know me, I'm not much of a storyteller, but I felt like this was a good story because it's applicable to what I want to say. And I want to share with you a little bit of the details of the story because, well, I'll get to the point in a moment. So in the early 2000s, Shannon and I were just having children at the very beginning of early years of our marriage. And we had an opportunity at that time. The city of Roseville was doing a, a program to help people that were first-time homebuyers get their foot in the door. And this was in the, as the market was really increasing and home prices were soaring. And Shannon and I had this opportunity to buy a house. And it was really amazing how that even came about because the city of Roseville had this list of hundreds of people who all wanted to get their foot in the door through this program. And the only way that it would work is if your name, if you were at the bottom, you had to wait until your name came to the top of that list as other people got their homes. But then to coincide with that, because the housing market being what it was, builders of new construction, which this program only covered, were holding lotteries. Do you guys remember when new construction was doing lotteries? You'd have to show up if you wanted to get a chance to buy a house, and you had to have your name picked from this batch. And so those two lists had to coincide with each other. Well, it was amazing. We had our name on this list, and we were waiting, and we were waiting, we were waiting. And we met someone who was on the worked for the builder. And they, for whatever reason, they took our name and they put our name to the top. And happened and we waited there and so our name was getting called and then it came up on the city and we had this opportunity. So Shannon and I lived in that house and fast forward a handful of years and a handful of kids and we outgrew the house and decided that we were going to rent the house out. And so I didn't even tell Shannon, I took some pictures of it, I put the house on Craigslist of all places. I know now you think of that, you're like, oh my gosh, you put your house on Craigslist. It was back when Craigslist was more reputable. I put our house on Craigslist with a couple of pictures. Actually, the first day I posted, I didn't even put any pictures on it. I went back the next day and put some pictures. And within 48 hours, we had a young couple who said, I've been looking for a house in your area, in this neighborhood that we lived in. We've been looking to rent a house there. We want your house. So I had to go to Shannon and say, hey, guess what? We've got a, we got a tenant for a house that you didn't even know we were going to necessarily rent. And so we then had to find a place, and they wanted to move into this house as quick as they possibly could. And so I was working for a plumbing shop at the time, and uh, I had some clients at the plumbing shop that were property managers, so I called one of them, who I knew well. 
And I said, listen, and, and, and I was only the only one working. She was a stay-at-home mom. I was making like 15 bucks an hour, so we could like literally afford nothing. I said, listen, here's what we can do. I think we can afford $1,500 a month. We need at least three bedrooms. And a week later, she called me and said, hey, I've got a house that's three bedrooms. It's in Southland Park, and the guy wants 1500 bucks a month for it. So we went and we looked at it, and we took it right then. Stick with me. Fast forward 10 years later, the crash, the real estate market crashed. The house that we bought through the program for hundreds of thousands of dollars was worth like $100,000 and was worth 100000 or thereabouts for years and years and years. And I mean, you have to, it was a little house. It was not like the most desirable. It's kind of like a niche, you know, real estate market thing. And, uh, and so fast forward to this year, and I'm casually having a conversation with a friend, and he goes, How, you know, how's that house doing? We've had renters, and that's a whole other story of God's provision of renters all these last 13, 15 years, 16 years that we've had that house. No, it doesn't matter. Anyway, long time. And he said, hey, you got that house. What's going on with it? You should think about selling it. I go, oh, it's not, it's not worth anything. I don't even think it had, the ship had righted. And he goes, well, you should just take a look at it. So I went and looked at it, and sure enough, it actually had righted, and it righted because of how crazy things are to a profit. And so Shannon and I decided that we, just this last month, a month ago, we put the house on the market. And um, within like four or five, five days, we had six or seven offers in four or five days, and they were all like at asking price and over. And so, uh, in fact, it just closed this uh, a couple of days ago. And so Shannon and I were having a conversation, and the conversation was something like this, and it was just like, we have, a, currently we live in an old home, and that home needs a lot of love. It needs a lot of money injected into it. And so it was like, hey, this is amazing. God's provided this ability for us to, you know, replace our HVAC and probably repair our plumbing and this and that. And I said to Shan, I said, man, I, I feel like that part of what we need to consider too is, is taking from what we have been received here and to give out of what God has provided for us. And we had this kind of back and forth, you know, and it was a real candid conversation of just like, yeah, but, you know, we need to do this and we need to do that and we need to do this. And if I'm really honest with you guys, there was this a tug of a back and forth in our hearts in this conversation of, and, and what it was is I wouldn't, it wasn't greed. It was sincere because of, it was coming from a place, again, of wanting to better a position for our family. But I would have to be honest with you, church, I was being gripped by something other than the kingdom of God in that moment. And I tell you all this story because, first off, I want to walk humbly before you. And this isn't me now saying, okay, guys, here's what you need to do while I sit back and do the opposite. It's to say that I, too, and Shannon and I, as we walk this out, we, we wrestled back and forth. What, what is it that we are to do with this? But let me just say this. This was, this was the, the, the point of me saying all of this. The question that we had to ask ourselves is, whose money is it? I just shared with you a fraction of what God has done in the life of Shannon and I over the last 15 plus years. A fraction of it, church. I, would, I could blow your mind with the provision of God in our life, the story that he has told us. And as we sat there, the question that we had to answer was, whose money is it? Is it our money to sit there and go back and forth of this is what we're going to do with this, 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 and this? No, we had to realize it was God's. God had walked us through every step of the last 15 years of our lives financially. 
And we have a story to tell that we would love to tell you sometime. But I tell you, I stand here and I say, that is God's. That house was God's. The prophet is God's. The money that we now end up with is God's. All of it is for him to do with as he was. That's the heart of the matter, church. Whose is it? Whatever that thing is that you're gripped and held by today, whose is it? Is it yours or is it Christ's? And if it's yours, you have to let it go because it's standing in the way of what God has called you to, to live for him in this day and age. Now we're getting to the nitty-gritty, right? It doesn't matter what, what the possession or what the resource is. The question that we have to ultimately ask ourselves is whose is it? Whose is it? David in Psalm 24, he opens with the obvious answer to this question when he says this, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therewithin. In other words, it's all God's. It's all God's, church. And then Paul would add in Romans 11, beautifully, to him, through him and to him are all things. From him, through him and to him are all things. All is all. See, church, generosity begins with the recognition that all things are God's to begin with, and it's from his great love and affection that he gives to us that we might in return glorify him by emulating his generosity through our lives and through our actions. He gives to us that we would give in return. And when we think about salvation, I would venture to guess that there's probably not a single person in here today who has come to faith that would say that their salvation was based on anything that they could have done or provided to Christ. I would venture to guess there's not one here that said, oh yeah, you should have seen what I gave him. <laughs> right? So why do we do that with our possessions? If the life that we have received is from Christ, why do we then seem to turn our back on things of matters of treasure and of wealth, of resource, and we somehow think that those are ours when this was not. You see what I'm saying? It's not logical. So whether we're talking about time to sacrifice to open your home to someone, we give him glory by emulating his generosity or grabbing lunch or coffee with someone, or time to serve somewhere here on a Sunday or somewhere throughout the week, or financial to someone, help to someone that, who's in need, or those of you with a truck to help somebody move. That's why I don't own a truck. I'm stingy. Lord, forgive me. No, regardless of the... So whatever... My point is just to say, like, even in those small things... When something is asked of us unto the glory of God, because God can receive glory through small things in our life, right? When something is asked of us, what is the inclination of our heart? And I would just say again that it should be to love that object, that person, that, that opportunity to love 
as God does and the way that he does so as to give generously whatever is needed. To take our advantage, church, as the words of Paul in Philippians. To take our advantage and to make it an advantage for God's kingdom. To use it as leverage for the kingdom of God. See, but it's going to take something that's so much more and so much, so much deeper than just a moment of, of clarity of going, oh yeah, I need to do that. It's a heart change, church. It's a heart change. But as I said, that heart change has already been made real through the regeneration of our hearts through Christ Jesus. And now it's the process of sanctification where we put off the old man that says, this is for me. I did this. I deserve this. I own this. This is mine. And it says, no, the new man in Christ Jesus says, this is Christ's. This is Christ. This is Christ. My family is Christ. My calendar is Christ. My wallet is Christ. It's all God's because of God has given to me so generously. See, I think we all know this and we all agree with this, but, but I'm, I know, myself included, I don't always live this. May we live this by the grace of God. May we live this by the grace of God. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Rick shared uh, a verse from this a couple of weeks ago. I'm just going to kind of speak actually around what he, what he spoke. Is this okay? All right. I know I've been sharing a lot from my heart. So what's it going to take then? What's it going to take for us? I want to finish by just considering Jesus' explanation of this life of radical generosity, the orientation of our hearts and minds. So he says this, this is Matthew chapter 6, and I want to read from verse 19. He says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where... Thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And he says in 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's two points that I want to extract from this. And so Jesus is using, of course, the subject matter of wealth and treasure because, again, of its significance. But this principle that he is speaking of, it goes much broader than just that single subject of wealth and treasure. And there's two things that I believe are vitally important that are part of this new makeup of the new man or woman who is in Christ Jesus as it pertains to living radically generous in our lives for Christ. The first is this, that it begins with a new orientation. It begins with a new orientation. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, he says, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Notice that it isn't the treasure that's the object of the imperative. It's not don't lay up treasure. It's the nature of the treasure that he is concerned with. 
The phrase could also be translated literally to this, stop storing up for yourselves earthly treasure. It's this, it's this implication of a present and ongoing engagement or pursuit that we are in. Stop storing up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because we know we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. And not only that, but there's matters of greater significance. There's lives and there's souls that are, be, that are to be won for Christ Jesus. And who knows if what you have to give, be it a lot or be it a little, is a part of God's plan to bring that soul to Christ. I don't know. You don't know. But it's the same thing with the proclamation of the gospel. We don't know those whom Christ has chosen as his own. But what are we told to do? We're told to speak without discrimination, to proclaim the message of the gospel. So too do we do the same thing with our own lives and with our resources. We don't know, and so we give. We give, we give. Stop storing up for yourselves earthly. We are to go from the earthly to the heavenly, and is that not the way of the kingdom of God, church? To go from the temporal perspective to the eternal perspective. To the, to the perspective that is, that is finite, that is limited, that tarnish at times, to the glorious, to the eternal. That is the way of the kingdom of God. And let me just quickly move. So the first is a new orientation. As a new creation in Christ Jesus, living as radically generous individuals for the kingdom of God, it begins with a new orientation. We are oriented towards the eternal, towards the heavenly and away from the earthly. And secondly, it's lived out through a new perspective. And, and here in this portion of the chapter, Matthew kind of adds the words of Christ, which we see in Luke are, are in different places. They're not all one, but Matthew has them all as one. And it's really interesting. It's like, okay, we get 19 through 21. We really get, number, we get verse 24, but 22 through 23, we're like, what is he getting at here? That almost seems like it's a bit of out of place. But listen to this. There's a Greek word that's used for the healthy eye. There's a word in the Greek that's used for the healthy eye, and, it, and it's hoplous. And it means, it's, tr it's translated in the NASB as clear, but it could be more literally translated as singular. The singular eye, it says. Talking about a new perspective, the singular eye. If your eye is single, your whole body will be filled with light. Brothers and sisters, generosity begins with a singular perspective. And I've been speaking about this already. A singular perspective of the kingdom of God. No more double-mindedness. No more living in the earthly and the eternal, or at least endeavoring to live straddled between the two, or more in one and more in the other from time to another. And that's his point in verse 24. You can't do that. Because a slave is, is owned by one. A slave serves one. It cannot serve two, in spite of the fact that we try all the time. 
I believe God's calling us to a single-mindedness in not only our pursuit of him, but in our efforts of advancing his kingdom through the means with which he has given to us. And then to take this even further, there's more to this good eye. And just stick with me for a moment because it actually speaks exactly to what I'm saying here this morning. Because in Proverbs, in the, in the Septuagint, Proverbs actually uses the same word again of hoplus, and it says this in Proverbs 11.25, that a generous person will be prosperous. It's that exact same word that is, that is used here for singular, but also has a deeper connotation of generosity. And it's contrasted with the bad eye that we saw in Matthew 6, is going to show up again in Matthew 20, in the parable of the, of the, uh, of the, of the master and the, um, and the laborers. And the, and the master says to the one of the laborer after his payment, he says to him, that is your eye envious because I am generous in Matthew 20. So that good eye and that bad eye that's contrasted there in verses 22 through 23 of Matthew 6 actually is speaking to this exact thing, to the heart of generosity. That's why it's fit so perfectly here in chapter 6. Because it has to do with what is gripping us, church. It has to do with the things that we hold as ultimate, the advantages that we keep for ourselves. How bright is the light that shines from a generous heart and through a generous life. Amen? How bright is that light? We can all sit here and quickly think of individuals in our lives who we go, man, they are generous. How bright is that light? But what does Jesus say, contrasting at church? But if your eye is bad, if your eye is stingy, if your heart is, if your heart is envious, if it's begrudging and it's relinquishing what is already Christ's, then how great is the darkness within you? And can I just say, just to, to finish it too, I think there's, there, there's, there's three liturgies within culture, habit-forming, identity-shaping values that we hear often within culture that again, too, I believe, creep into our hearts as believers, that work against this singular eye of orientation to Christ Jesus. And it's this, it's, the state, it's these three statements. The first is that I did this, which is a statement of self-preservation. In other words, we look at what we've received or we look at what we have and we somehow think that this was our doing. The second is a statement of self-promotion. It says that I earned this. See, it's easy because we, we work, we toil, right? We receive payment that's commensurate with the work and the labor. So in some sense, we do, which is why it's easy to have that creep in. But again, we're talking about an issue of the heart. So it's not that you literally earned it because you did literally earn it, but that we would somehow see what God has given to us, and we would see it as our right. I earned this. 
And the third kind of cultural liturgy that we see and that we hear as elevated is a self-centered one, and it's that I deserve this. I did this, I earned this, and I deserve this. Church, three statements that are absolutely working against everything that I have said here this morning. May we shirk them off. May we cast off that approach. And may we be like David, who it says, the earth is the Lord's. Everything I have is the Lord's. All that I have, and the, and the joy that comes from seeing it, again, using this idea of, of Paul and Philippians as an advantage, to see it as an advantage for the kingdom of God. Listen, I know many, many, many of you here live this way. But may we live it even more. Keep our hearts from idols, as John would say. Children, church, keep your hearts free of idols. Because it's then that God can use and will use and does use us in an even greater way to the glory of his name. Amen? Amen.